we are continuing in the book of Acts. In 22. And so Paul here, um, if you've been following along with us, um, I think the last one to preach in Acts was Pastor Kevin. Was that, were you the last one to preach in Acts, Pastor Kevin? I think so. I, we, we've had a few different preachers in between preaching different things. So um, continuing the book of Acts, and we're going to see here uh, uh, Paul um, is in uh, Jerusalem here, and he's going before the... Uh, before the ruling council here, starting in verse 23, it says, Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do for this man as a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. And the commander answered with a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman, and because he had bound him. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear, and brought Paul down and set him before them. Chapter 23, And Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was a high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel is spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And then the, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them, bring him back into the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So we, we see here twice in this brief section that Roman law comes to Paul's aid. Um, I, one of the times that I preached, I talked about Roman, Roman law and uh, Paul as a citizen and his rights under the Roman law. And so Paul declares his Roman citizenship, citizenship sparing him from the Roman flogging. And if you know anything about flogging, um, this was uh, done with a scourge, right? This was an instrument that had, it was an instrument of torture. And if you know anything about the Romans, they were just, they loved to torture. And so it consisted of a leather throng and it was weighted with rough pieces of like metal and bone. And so um, under the scourging, typically a man that was under that would either be crippled for life if he even survived it. So it was a, it was a horrible thing. 
So he is saved from this, and Paul then taken to the Sanhedrin, this is that ruling council of the Jews, where he begins to explain his position, and he's struck by the high priest for claiming his good conscience before God. Which seems to Ananias, the high priest, if you know anything about Ananias, he was not a very nice fellow. You can go research him. Um, and so it seems to Ananias, this is the height of arrogance. It's a height of arrogance, uh, perhaps even blasphemy. So Paul calls the high priest a whitewashed tomb, basically saying that he is a, a hypocrite. But as soon as it's revealed that it's the high priest that Paul spoke to, he repents, quoting Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight: do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Paul then spies the room and sets the Pharisees against the Sadducees, stating the reason for which he is called into question the resurrection. This then, of course, triggers uh, uh, furthering arguing because the Sadducees and Pharisees don't agree on much anyways, right? So Paul sets them against each other for this. It becomes further arguing and becomes so violent that this third time the commander has to rescue Paul out of this again. So then the violence of the last two days, the enmity of the Jews must have made Paul wonder anxiously about his future. There seemed to be little prospect of him going up to, um, of leaving Jerusalem alive, let alone traveling on to Rome. In his moment of discouragement, Jesus comes, comforts him with a straightforward promise that as he has borne witness to him in Jerusalem, he must also bear witness to him in Rome. So that's what's going on in this portion of scripture right here. What can we learn from this? Paul said that he had a good conscience before God. I had, he said, I, and it was the reason that he was struck, right? Until he says, up until this day, I have had a good conscience before God. Paul lived with a good conscience. Now, this word in the Greek, it just means a moral consciousness. It means a moral awareness. It's an inner freedom of the spirit that comes from knowing that we have not offended God by our thoughts or our actions. It's listed in scripture as one of our essential weapons for a successful spiritual life and ministry. In 2 Corinthians 1.12... It says, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. Paul tells Timothy, he says, this I charge, I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith in a good conscience which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. So a, a good conscience then, that moral rightness between us and God, we see then is something that is to be valued, is something to be uh, sought after, is something to keep this open between us and the Lord. So we're going to talk about a conscience tonight, a good conscience. And all good conscience is the name of uh, my sermon. And so uh, I have some things for here. The first thing a good conscience does, a good conscience operates in repentance. 
Psalm 51.10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So repentance is not only a one-time thing. We are to maintain a repentant heart. It's uh, routinely acknowledging sin and seeking God's grace and mercy in the midst of our daily mistakes. This is not meant as a means to secure our salvation, but to keep our heart clean and pure daily before him. Right? And the Bible teaches the need for repentance. And I say big R, repentance, referring to the repentance from dead works and a life lived apart from God. This is the initial act of repentance, of coming to the Lord, that that is a turning away from dead works, a turning away from an old man into a new life of God. Right? And the Bible refers to this as a cleansing, right? Where it says the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. It acknowledges that we are sinners and that we are in need of God's mercy to avoid the penalty of sin, which is eternal death and separation. And this is a unique kind of repentance that only the Holy Spirit can produce in the heart of an unbeliever. It's be the, it's the, the Spirit comes on the heart of an unbeliever and says, you need a Savior. Yeah. Right? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. This is what we're talking about. This kind of re- leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. But then there's a daily repenting, and I say little r, referring to regret or sorrow over when we are convicted of a sinful behavior. Yeah. This is also the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's producing a sanctifying process in our lives that we might become more and more like Christ. This is the process of sanctification, and it lasts our whole lifetime. Unrepentant sin can and will bring severe consequences on our lives, and so we see this as a daily need requirement. Right? When the disciples asked Jesus... Teach us to pray, right? How did he respond? Right? In this manner, therefore pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So we see a daily need because this is a daily prayer. We see a daily need to keep our heart clean before God. This was not a formula to be repeated, but a pattern to be prayed daily. It says, forgive as we forgive others. It's not a shame thing. It's an act of humility. It's not a repenting of old sins that are under the blood. That's not what it is. You know, uh, I remember when I was a baby Christian, um, man, I was up at the altar all the time, constantly repenting of all my, all my old sins. And finally, the Lord spoke to me and said, Crystal, that's under the blood. Stop. Like, it's not repenting of old things that are under the blood. It's, it's those daily things, right? The thoughts that, are, that sometimes go left unchecked. Yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the things, one of the main um, purposes of the Holy Spirit is that he will convict the world of sin. And so it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit in us. And it's not, it's not a condemnation. It's a conviction and it should prick your spirit and says, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. I shouldn't be saying that. I shouldn't be going there. Those are those type of things where we feel that conviction of the Holy Spirit. And, if, and, and we immediately say, oh, Lord, forgive me for that. Just to keep our conscience clean. It's part of sanctification. 
It's an act of humility, not shame. This is through the Holy Spirit, obeying his promptings and obeying his word, right? Every single one of us are in a, in a, in a uh, lifetime of growing, of becoming more like Christ every day. It's a process of sanctification. Nobody on this earth has arrived. <laughs> but we should be growing. We should be growing. We should be changing. It's a part of sanctification. We're becoming more Christ-like. But if you don't listen to those promptings of the Holy Spirit, if you sit there and say, you know, I can do what I want because I'm covered by grace, well, ooh, shame on you. Daily. It's a daily thing. The second thing is, a good conscience is void of offense. Acts 24, 16, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. Okay, so there's two kinds of offenses here. There's an offense towards God, right? And this is that part where there is nothing that I'm putting between me and the Lord. There's no sin, there's no person, there's no idol, there's no thing that I am putting between me and the Lord. Right, and if if you read, um, I read this book. Uh, uh, this John Bevere's new book, Killing Kryptonite. It's so good, and he was talking about what an idol is because we have these ideas of what idol, what what idols are. And he's like, any thought, any thought that you think of more than God is an idol. Right, and so these are those things we to keep a clear conscience. We don't want anything be hindering our relationship with God. There's nothing that I'm putting between me and the Lord, right? And Paul commanded his flesh to be put in subjection in order that he would not have anything hinder his walk with the Lord. We see this in 1 Corinthians. It says, therefore, I run not with uncertainty. He said, I don't run just aimlessly. I have an aim. And he said, and I fight not with uncertainty, not as one who beats the air, right? He's like, I'm, he said, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Yeah. Right? And so Paul, what, what, what Paul's saying here, he says, listen, I have to do this. I've got to keep my flesh in check so that nothing hinders my walk because I can preach to thousands of people and still be disqualified. Paul strove to not have a corrupted evil conscience. In Hebrews 10, it says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So how do we have this good conscience? We draw near in full assurance of faith with a true heart. But full assurance of faith cannot be reached without a true heart. And a true heart is a heart that is desirous of seeking that which it claims to seek. It's truly desirous to seek that which it claims to seek. A heart that truly desires to forsake everything to dwell in the holiest place 
and forsaking everything to possess God. Not what God can do for me, not what what I want from him, but who he is. A heart that truly abandons everything in order to yield itself to the authority and the power of Jesus. That's what it means to have a pure heart, to seek him with that. When all we are concerned is how we appear to others and neglect our own heart and thoughts, and we neglect God's word to us, we can neglect the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we have lost sight of what God is trying to do within us. And we are in danger of a seared conscience. I tell this uh, to people all the time. It's something God spoke to me years ago. Working for God never takes a place of spending time in God's presence. And we can get so focused on the doing that we forget we're supposed to be in his presence. When we get so focused on everything else, we forget we're supposed to be drawing near to God. Timothy, uh, Paul says, Timothy says, now the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. We're living in the latter days and some have departed from the faith. Giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. So he says, we can fall away from, a, from God with a seared conscience. So this idea of keeping our conscience good yeah. is real. Yeah. It's valid. It's legitimate. We should pray this way in Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And it's this daily thing of subjecting yourself continually to the heart-searching light of the Holy Spirit. Lord, search my heart, search my thoughts, search my ways, God, to see if there's anything in me, Lord, that you want out of me. Let him search your heart, because he will uncover what's hidden if you allow him to, and if you will be honest with yourself and allow the Spirit to speak to those dark places. And the second part of this is offense toward men. Because this is twofold as well. Not causing any offenses and not holding any offenses. 2 Corinthians 6.3, Paul said this, We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. Right? And a lot of people question Paul's actions to the high priest, right? We looked at that, and where, where the high priest um, slaps him, and so he says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And those that stood by said, do you revile God's high priest, right? And, and some people say, well, Paul, you know, Paul was bold, and he was, you know, that. And I was like, no, Paul was not belligerent, he was not rebellious. Uh, it, was, it was a well-known fact that Paul had poor eyesight. Um, a lot of scholars believe that it was from the many stonings that he endured. Shocker. <laughs> you know, and then so when he's looking out, he sees a bunch of white robes in a, in a council and hears voices. So he just thinks it's a council of people. But as soon as he heard it was the high priest, right, he apologized. He apologized. He was respectful and he submitted to their authority. So to have no offense, we must control our words and actions because one day we will give an account of these things. Right? And Jesus told us this. Jesus said, he said, every idle word a man will give an account for on the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified and by your words you shall be condemned. And so that says to me that he takes my words seriously. 
He takes what I'm saying seriously. That he holds my words, right? As he captures all my tears, he's writing in a book. Because there's a judgment for non-believers and there's a judgment for believers. There's a judgment day for believers. And it says that you will be judged on your works. So, so I don't know what that looks like to go before him and maybe not have, may, maybe not have controlled my words. Well, I don't, I don't know what it's going to look like. But why not just take him at his words? Why not just take him at his word that he says we will give an account of these things? Romans 14, 13 says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in another in our brother's way. So we don't want to put anything, that's a, a, a stumbling block is an offense. We don't put anything, we don't, we don't do anything, we don't say anything, we don't put anything that will cause a brother to stumble. That means you live life unto him. That's why Paul said, you know, I, I will never eat meat again if it causes my brother to stumble. Yeah. I won't do this. I won't go there. I won't do these things, right? And we have such an American rebellious mentality of I can do what I want. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. Good luck. It's one of the reasons I don't drink alcohol. Well, and, and a lot of people know my past. I came from a past of drugs and alcohol. And so part of that was God telling me, don't touch that. It's not for you. I don't want you to have anything to do with that. And part of that is I don't want to be a stumbling block for somebody else that might, might, might struggle with that. Because if I'm sitting there and I'm having a glass of wine because I can have one glass of wine and it causes my brother to stumble, now I'm in sin. Because I couldn't control my own flesh. Because I wanted what I wanted to do. Not holding an offense is to walk in a spirit of forgiveness. And if anyone told you I won't forgive them, they're lying to you. They're a liar. If someone told you Crystal won't forgive me, right now I'm telling you, they're a liar. Because I, I have been forgiven so much. I have a nasty, deceitful past um, you know, uh, the hardest person in my life to forgive was my mom and I forgive my mom and we have a relationship now. Yeah. So I'm like, if I can forgive my mom, I can forgive anybody. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't hold grudges. I don't hold offenses. I have no right to, yeah. if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. Yeah. I have no right to hold an offense, holding an offense imprison you and forgiveness sets you free. But here's the difference, because there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Forgiveness is the Greek word epiphemi, meaning to send away, dismiss, suffer, to depart, to emit, or send forth. Reconciliation is a different word. It's catalage. Uh, that's probably French, but anyways. <laughs> it's Greek. It just looks French to me. I took three years of French, so it's like catalage. <laughs> But it's not. It's Greek. I can't speak Greek, so I don't know. Meaning, <laughs> it means an exchange, reconciliation, restore to favor. So reconciliation involves forgiveness, but it goes beyond forgiveness. When I forgive someone, there's no guarantee that we will have a restored relationship. Because forgiveness is solo. You can forgive someone who's dead. How many of y'all know that? You forgive someone that's dead. 
And it may be well after that I've forgiven someone that we remain estranged because reconciliation is a joint venture. And there can be no restoration of relationship without repentance. There's no relationship without repentance. You can't restore a relationship without repentance. As the prodigal returned to the father in a position of humility, where he said, I am not even worthy to be called your son. That's true repentance. So we must repent if the relationship is to be restored. Somebody that just sweeps things under the rug and pretends that things never happen is operating under a spirit of deception. And all this does is produce a superficial, disingenuous relationship. Because no true fellowship, right? No true fellowship. Two cannot walk together unless they be in agreement. There's no true fellowship that can take place under these circumstances. And, and God requires repentance as a means of reconciliation. Because yeah, God currently is offering forgiveness towards everybody. Yeah. It's been bestowed. He has put it out there. The debt to be released. But that reconciliation, we're, we are to be reconciled to the Father. Yes. That reconciliation then is you have to repent to be reconciled then yeah. to the Father. Amen. This is the only way to any restored relationship. But forgiveness from you is mandatory. Yeah. 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 It's just releasing them of the debt. Yeah. It's like, I, don't, I don't hold this against you. Yeah. And, and I'm willing for the relationship to be restored, but that takes two. Yeah. Yeah. But on my part, I'll forgive your debt. 100%. My debt was 100% wiped away. Yeah. You have no right to hold anything against anybody. I don't care what's been done to you. I don't care what's been done to you. I don't care what's been done to you. Was that you, Wendy, that said that? (laughs) You know, and and for those people that are like, how does this happen? Listen, I was sexually molested. A lot of the women know that. Several times by a lot of different people, by men and women. Okay? My mom gave me drugs when I was nine. Okay? You have no right to hold anything against anybody. If you want to be forgiven, you forgive. You release the debt. Now listen, if they don't repent, that relationship's not going to be restored. My mom and I have a restored relationship. Praise God. Because she repented. We have a restored relationship. That's true fellowship. The next thing is a good conscience is committed to Christ and obeys his commands. No one could ever question Paul's commitment to the Lord. Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? Paul's life was not his own. Paul was completely committed to Christ. Paul did not do his own will. He did the will of Christ. That was what he, he did. God, he did, he did what the Lord asked him to do. And when, it's interesting when you read through Acts, there's places that the Holy Spirit said, don't go there. And he would open up a door for him somewhere else. And Paul was like, okay, I'm going to go here. 
Because it wasn't, Paul didn't have a special work. And we get this idea, you know, I know that's being preached everywhere. We all have this, I have a special work and special purpose. Your job is to do the will of him who sent you. That's it. We're called to, do, to be Jesus' own people. And then we do not dictate to Jesus what we intend to do. We do what he asks us to do. That's, that's the heart of a servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. servant. When we truly have an awe of God, when we, we, we will never tell him what we are going to do. We will just obey. When you truly have an awe of God, you will not tell him what you're going to do. You'll just obey. And first Peter says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. This word's all over the place, folks. There's a lot more. I was like, wow, this word's all over there. That when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. This is the second part of sanctification now that you must do, right? Peter's quoting Isaiah 8, 13, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hollow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Most of the New Testament is them quoting Old Testament scriptures. So Peter here is quoting Isaiah Sanctify the Lord in your hearts. And this means to recognize in word and deed his holiness and therefore to entreat him with awe. So this not only substitutes the fear of God for the fear of man, but enforces purity in our life. It's this awe of God. Being in awe of God, right? This is, and this is to be done in our hearts. Notice he says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Not simply with your hearts or from your hearts, but in your hearts. With sincerity and devotion. And Peter calls for an inner reverence, the sanctify. Set apart yourself for the Lord. Amen. Set apart yourself for the Lord. There's two types of separation required for us. It's a separation from the world and a separation to the Lord. There's a separation from the world and there's a separation that says, I am completely yours, God. Do with me what you want. I will go where you want me to go. I will do what you want me to do. I am yours. And we walk in the fear and, and the admonition of the Lord in awe that the creator of the universe lives in me. That should inspire awe in us. That the creator of the universe lives in me. Are you treating him as a common thing? This has been the word that's been on my heart for the last year is this common thing, right? And one of the things the Lord has spoke, has spoken to me about, you know, um, I have a prophetic anointing. I've been speaking in tongues for 25 years. I have different giftings that God has given me throughout the years. But, you know, because I've been speaking in the, uh, speaking in tongues for so long, it's been, it's been almost 26 years now that I've been praying in the spirit. I've become a little bit apathetic about it. And God reminded me how excited I was on the first time I spoke in tongues. 
God reminded me how excited I was to pray in the spirit. God reminded me how excited I was the first time that I prophesied to somebody. God reminded me these things. And he said, because I want that, I want you to be excited for that every day. Because the Holy Spirit is holy. His anointing, his gifts are holy. And they're beautiful. And we don't want to treat them like they're just common. They're not common. They're uncommon. You know, if you've been been praying in spirit for a long time, you you, you get kind of used to that. You go in my prayer closet and I begin praying in the spirit and I begin praying in the spirit and I kind of take it for granted a little bit. And literally it was this moment where I thought for a minute, what if God took that away from me? What if God took that gift away from me? Because I've come to rely on it so much and I love praying in this. I love those things. Like, Lord, help me never to lose that zeal for you that I had in the beginning. Help me never to lose that zeal for your gifts, that I don't treat them as a common thing, but as a holy, wonderful, beautiful thing, God. Let me not be apathetic towards these things. I was thinking about Samson, right? And most of us know know, know the story of Samson, and when you go through and, man, Samson continually just treated his gift as a common thing. And he continually sinned against God and sinned against what the Lord told him to do. And, and, you know, uh, the, the, one of the most, um, worst things about Samson is that, you know, he was the strongest judge in in all of these things. He could have done the most out of all the judges. And his job, if you remember, was to destroy the Philistines. And I thought, what if, what if he would have held to his calling? And what if he would have treated God's Holy Spirit as a beautiful thing and loved it and obeyed everything that God asked him to do? What if he would have destroyed the Philistines? And I look ahead to David. Would David have ever had to go against the Philistines? No, because when we don't take care of things, they get passed on to generations. These are just things I think about all the time, Martha. <laughs> and, and what you saw with Samson is that the Spirit of God left him and he didn't even know it. Yeah. The last part of this, God honors those who honor him. The Lord stood by Paul to encourage him. When he was in prison, the Lord came to him. He stood by him. In Psalm 118.6, it says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? In the midst of of Paul in prison, not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing if he was going to die there, the Lord comes to him and says, Don't fear, Paul. I am by your side. Pastor Kevin posted this last week. It's interesting. This was, that, this was my sermon coming up. Jesus knew where Paul was. He had not lost sight of Paul because Paul was in jail. When John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, was in jail, a man visited him and said, Friend, the Lord sent me to you, and I have been looking in half the prisons in England for you. John Bunyan replied, I don't think the Lord sent you to me, because if he had, 
you would have come here first. (laughs) For God knows I've been here for years. So God knows where you're at today. And even if we're hiding from everybody else, even we're, we're, we're trying to hide and, you know, we're trying to do things in the dark, God knows where you're at. When nobody else knows, God knows. When nobody else cares, God cares. He knows where you are. He wasn't looking for Paul. Paul, where are you? I can't find you. What prison are you in? He knew where he was and he came to him in his moment of need. I love that Psalm. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the message. You know, I talked about repentance tonight, the big R. And if you've never repented of your sins and turned away from the world and turned towards the Lord, God is here tonight. Jesus is here. He knows where you're at. He knows what you've been thinking. He knows what you've been doing. Listen to this. He knows everything about you and he still wants to forgive you. He knows everything you've done. He knows every place you've gone. He knows every thought that you've had. And he still wants to forgive you. And if you don't know the Lord, I just want to present an opportunity tonight to know him. That if you would just lift up your voice. And ask him. Call out to him, Lord, I need you. Forgive me of my sins. Draw me close to you. He's there, friend. He's there. And he's waiting. That's you tonight. If you want someone to pray with you, someone can pray with you. But you know, this is between you and God. You can do it right there in your seat. And let's put this word into practice. If there's, if there's anything that God is telling you is hindering you, that your conscience is not clear, it's not good before him. And you're not, listen, friend, you're not a good judge of that. God's a good judge of that. We think, oh, my, my conscience isn't clear. And then when you go before him to examine him, be, be very careful. <clears throat> if you have anything that is just hindering you tonight, if there's any offense, if there's any forgiveness that you need to extend, just put it out to him. Just release it to him tonight. If you need to forgive somebody, forgive them. Let it go. Just let it go. Don't hold on to that grudge any longer. Don't hold on to that offense any longer. Lord, I just thank you tonight for this word. Lord, let it go down deep into us, Father. Let us draw near to you with full assurance. Full assurance, God, 
having our conscience clear and good before you, Lord. That we might know you, Lord. Know your ways. That we would do those things you've asked us to do, Father. That we would come into your presence. Come boldly into the throne in our time of need. Lord, I just thank you and praise you for tonight. God, I thank you for this word, Lord. Let us chew on it throughout the week until we come back on Sunday, Father. We just give you praises and glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Get your kids. Thank you for watching the Faith and Victory live stream. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check us out online at faithandvictory.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat, and we'd love to connect with you there. If you'd like to financially support Faith and Victory Church's ministry, please text FAVC to 77977. God bless you and keep you. From the FVC Live team.